my pleasure to introduce our our leaders for the workshop this afternoon, uh, Cliff G. and his wife, uh, Lori G. Uh, they're going to um, lead us on a workshop about relationships and recovery. And uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing what uh, they have to share with us. So without further ado, let's give them a warm welcome. Hey, everybody, I'm Clifton Gray, for Alcoholic. Sober since August of 1501 for that short amount of time. It was great because I know how to be. And it's been really great. Uh, what a great workshop. Good talk this morning. Good workshop this afternoon. And we could have just probably killed it right there, come back for Lisa and not been a great day. But uh, um, Lori and I have been tasked to talk about uh, relationships and recovery and uh I think one of the most important things, and, and listen, what we're mostly going to do today is just share uh, what hasn't worked. Uh, uh, <laughs> one of the things that I've uh, discovered uh, in a short amount of time I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous is that we're much more uh, brothers and sisters in our defects than we've ever been in our virtues. And what, while we are bound by this... Uh, and united under one under this one God that we uh, come to and discover this power in Alcoholics Anonymous and Alamon. It's our defects that bind us. It's that uh, common shipwreck that we have. And I think one of the really important things when we talk about relationships, uh, it's important for me. I've got to understand uh, what brought me here. Obviously, it's alcoholism that brings me to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that certainly you have to. There's a certain amount of liquor you need to drink to get here. Uh, it's incumbent that you have some to get here. It's certainly the entry fee. It's certainly what I have to have to have a step. But what's you know when I come here, what I discover is, and and in, in our literature it tells us on about page 19, it says you know. Uh, it's much more important demonstration of our principles take place in our home occupations and affairs. Also says something like elimination of drinking is just the beginning. Tells us that a couple more times over in the chapter um, to wives and the family afterwards talks to them. So just stopping the drinking is just the first part. Uh, Silkworth talked about in his opinion about an entire psychic change. Not a psychic change that just relates to my drinking. And, uh, you know, the drinking part is the flower on the truth. It's just that. The real problem uh, the book describes is that self is the problem. Chuck C. used to talk about there's one problem that's all problems, that's me. There's one solution that's all solutions, that's God. It's my separation from God. Selfishness, based on selfishness, self-centeredness. That creates the problem that I have. Touched on that is the byproduct of that is I happen to be allergic to booze. And unfortunately, it's the only thing that works. The trouble is I'm in, I get set up in that vicious cycle. And to the outside, to the whole world, it looks like booze is the problem. I mean, to, the, I mean, to everybody in our life, booze appears to be the problem. And I'm not suggesting that it's not. But we all know who are in Alcoholics Anonymous that you take the booze away from us, we just become a bigger ass than we were before we got here. I mean, we just become, uh, if you suffer from that spiritual malady, it just intensifies 
all that stuff. And so booze uh, was the solution, not the problem itself, although it appears to be the problem, certainly, certainly the admission ticket. So I have to understand when I get here, I have to understand some really pretty basic stuff. Once I get past the drinking part, I've got to understand some pretty basic things that the, that the steps enable me to embrace and encompass. The first thing I have to embrace and encompass for me is that I have to understand powerlessness comes from my separation. Textbook talks about there's one who has all power, that one is God, may you find him. Now, if God's got all power, I've got none. Zero. I love going to those uh, step six and seven meetings when somebody's talking about their defects. And I'm working on my defect. I'm working on my lust. I always think, I bet you are, you horny bastard, working on your lust. You know what? <laughs> By what power could I possibly work on those? I have no power. I've got no more power to address my defects than I did quitting the booze racket. So I have to understand, first of all, my, the nature of the powerlessness. And I'm separated from God on self-will. i got, I got to know that. And because I'm separated from God on self-will, I lack power. And what happens for a guy like me is I try to, all my life prior to coming down to Clarkson Anonymous, and sometimes while I'm here, I'll try to manufacture false power. We call those, when we get to Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I call those management tools, you people call them character defects, but uh, whatever, we don't want to mince words. So I try to manufacture power and it comes out looking like character defects, you know. I steal something from Rick, I get this sense of power. It's fleeting, but I get a sense of it. I lie to D, where's D? I lie to D, Get one over on her, I get a sense of power. I steal something from uh, Lisa, but I'm not that kind of friend. I do help her look for it. So I steal something from Lisa, and I get a sense of power. I mean, I get I get that deal. I go back and tell people about, hey, I got one over them. I get a sense of power from that. False power, it's fleeting. It doesn't work. It's not sustainable. It's all that stuff that I, it's how I learn how to live, like she said. Why? Because I'm separated from God on self, I have all that restless, irritable discontentedness. And because I have a restless, irritable discontentedness, I, I drink and I think I found the panacea for all my ills. And, uh, the trouble with that is I come to crossroads, accept spiritual help, or die an alcoholic death. And eventually we get to that spot. And so I have to understand the nature of my problem. I have to understand what step three talks about. I have to understand I'm a role assigner. I got to understand that. You know, step three on, on, uh, like page, uh, I don't know, uh, 62, somewhere in there talks about that. The we're like the actor who wants to be the director. But my whole life, I meet you. I know you for 10 seconds, I assign you a role. I don't tell you what your part is, but I just assign you a role. And I, and I have expectations of how that's supposed to look. And when you don't live up to that, I get restless, irritable, discontinued. The easiest one, of course, is the romantic relationship. It's the one that's the most vivid. So when we talk about relationships in recovery, the place that we find that role assignment becomes the most vivid is in that. 
And so it looks something like this. You know, I meet Lori. She's really cute. And uh, within the first 10 seconds of that, I have our life planned out. I have the house, the 2.5 kids. I never share that with her, but I immediately assign her a role. And in that role assignment, I know how for me that is supposed to look. Where do I get that? I got that from Leave it to Beaver, Andy Griffith, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I have that, how it's supposed to look. How that role is supposed to look. And because I'm plagued by separation from God, I continue to be insecure, inferior. I continue to have those feelings of restless, irritable discontentedness. So I sign her a role and immediately charge her with fulfilling the things that I believe will make me happy. Once again, looking at it outside will make me happy. And of course, what always happens is, because I'm alcoholic, I take people hostage. We go underground for about 60 days, but eventually you've got to come back to life, you know. You know how alcoholics are. We date with a U-Haul and a toothbrush. We do not mess around. You know? And um, So we come back to real life, and uh, we come to a crowd like this, and uh, I begin to notice some things about her. You know, where we're in a crowd like this, uh, she doesn't stand as close to me as the role calls for. And if we eliminate all the women, just the guys here, I notice that she doesn't take my hand as quickly as the role calls for. And uh, I'm not without compassion. I mean, I'll be kind to her, try to help her. I mean, I'm not going to tell her because she should know the role. She should know this is how it looks. So I'll be kind to her, you know. Or if that she doesn't get it, I'll just be a total jerk. In the hope that she'll want peace at any price and move where she needs to move to make me happy. And eventually, you know, I, I, the luster begins to shine from, fade from her star. She just doesn't get it. Of course, I get a couple of understudies, grooming them, getting ready to take her place. I mean, it's just all that all the time. It's just this continual transition of trying to find the person to fit the role. I've like, and it's the most vivid in our romantic relationships. But I did that with my parents. I did that with my brother. I did that with my friends. I signed them roles, expecting them to follow the role, and then I'd be happy. Third step talks about that. Uh, I have to take a really hard look. You know, I, I listen to people sometime in meetings say it's just a prayer. Boy, if it's just a prayer, that'd be great. But if I don't really understand what I'm asking for in that prayer, I'm in big trouble for the rest of my in every relationship I got, because this becomes the fundamental relationship in step three. If I struggle in step three, the book talks about it's the uh, keystone, it's the slot at the top. If I don't get it, I'm going to struggle with everything else. So if I don't get this fundamental relationship, this vertical relationship right, I'm going to struggle with all the horizontal ways. The better my relationship with God is, the better you all share in meetings. I'm telling you, <laughs> the better you drive on the highway, you know, the better my relationship with God, the better you all seem to do. Because I'm, I, I quit focusing on what you're doing to me, how you're not doing it right. And I begin just to focus on me, my attitudes, my behavior, what I'm doing. So I've got to understand that. I have to understand to obtain this personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism, I really have to understand the nature of my problem. 
And it's a lot more than just a prayer. That's the beginning of where I believe we really begin to surrender in our culture. I believe every step has a surrender feature in it. Big surrender in step one. But I'm going to tell you something. Step one without step two, just another bad day in the life of the drunk. Step one without step two, just another bad day in the life of the drunk. If all I got is I just know I'm powerless and unmanageable. That's the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, hopelessness, followed closely by the message of hope of coming to believe. So I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I get grounded in that, and of course when I get here, Lori and I are married, and we've been together, when I got sober, we'd been together about six six plus years when we got here. She'd lived through all that, you know. Uh, and so when we get here, I, I, have, I have to learn about that. This idea that selfishness. So I may, because I can tell you this, back in the, my prior life, when I, in my drinking life, I used to have a, suffer from another really bad problem. I would suffer from matrimonial amnesia. Uh, maybe some of you guys have suffered from that as well. <laughs> I suffer from matrimonial amnesia. I forget I was married. I just forget, you know. And so there's some things I've got to fix, uh, to add, go to God with to fix about my life. I'm an unreliable narrator of my life. How I see my life, how I see things in my life, I'm unreliable about that until I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I begin to get some perspective on that. Early on in my sobriety, Lori and I struggled. I mean, she, uh, early on when I got to, uh, came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't want to be here initially. And the first 45 days when she put me out of the house, I didn't, I didn't want to come that yet. Or didn't want to be sober, you know, because I didn't think that was my problem. And, uh, you know, I made her life crazy. I, mean, I just made it crazy. I don't, uh, I'm focusing on what I want to be. I'm selfish and self-centered, but I'm clueless about that. Uh, what I think I have learned the most uh, in our relationship is one of the things that I, I think that benefited us the most was taking the traditions off the wall in Alcoholics Anonymous and Alamon and bringing them to life in our relationship. When it talks about, uh, you know, the tradition one, um, the unity being uh, the real issue, the problem as uh, in the traditions, much like the step, step one identifies the problem in the traditions, it's no different. Tradition one identifies the problem, lack of unity, Unity is the number one thing. We have to have that in AA and Al-Anon. Every group uh, is a spiritual entity. This is a spiritual entity. So if the problem is unity, what's the solution? That is, uh, Judy talked about this earlier, that's God is, he may express himself in our group conscience. Tradition one identifies the problem. Tradition two identifies the solution. Traditions 3 through 11 tell us things that we don't do, we refrain from doing to bring about unity. We put those in practice in our lives and our relationship so that we can have unity here. The steps talk about 3 through 11, things we do to produce the given result, the promise in step 12, that's an awakening. Here, we things we don't do to produce that which is promised in 12 of the tradition that is spiritual anonymity. 
So we began to, through a, a great deal of uh, trial and error of trying to figure out how to live, how do we mesh these relationships together. I, I, I sometimes scratch my head and wonder how people, uh, when one is in recovery and one isn't, how they survive that. And I've watched a lot of relationships not make it. Then I've watched some relationships that do, where they're grounded in, they have some ground in a power greater themselves. They have some ability in a power greater themselves to do that and be successful. But I've watched those who were both members of the household or not in some kind of spiritual quest that they struggle. Struggle a lot. I'm real fortunate, Lori and I both are real fortunate. Many times when I've been asked to go do 12-step calls if they're married or have a significant other, I just call Lori and say, you know, I want you to go with me. And while I'm talking to the fella, she can talk to the gal. Our textbook talks to us about that in great detail and working with others long before Alamon was thought of in the book was written in 1939. It talks about uh, when we go talk to somebody that's drunk, or once, perhaps, and we go 12-step, we never leave that house without offering our way of life to the family. I think that's sometimes often overlooked. And I'm real fortunate that way because when I find someone that uh, has a relationship or is in one, I take her with me so to be sure, you know, I fulfill my obligation in that regard, what our book talks about, that I make sure that we make sure the family knows there's a way out. What did you talk about? Be happy with the alcohol drinking or sober. But, you know, until we began to put those traditions in our life, we found there was a, there was a period of just, uh, struggle. Um, of how do we, how do we, how do we get these two, uh, this erstwhile erratic alcoholic, uh, 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 and this non-drinking crazy person, uh, together and hitched up to the same, uh, forms. Oh, thanks for that. Excellent. Crazy person. Here you go. My name is Lord. I'm a member of Alabama. Hey, Lord. Hey, Lord. My recovery date is July 1st, 2001. All right. So when Cliff and I met, we were both sick. That's just the truth. We were both really sick. And um, at the time, I would have told you he was the problem. And there was nothing wrong with me. Thank you very much. And I... Uh, but I can tell you that it did take me long after being here that I was much sicker than he was. And the attitudes that I had and the things that I did, I did stone cold sober. And at least when he was crazy, he had a reason. I mean, he had some substance in his body. I did not. And, uh, and I was the, I was the crazy person. And, and you know, I'm going to tell you, I just want you to know kind of what it was like before. So you guys can get an idea of what it was like in our household. And, and I think, I don't think that our story is unique and I don't think there's anything that we've been through that somebody else hasn't been through or that is not familiar to people in these rooms. But I always thought that if he would just listen to me and do what I say, we would all be perfectly fine. Thank you very much. And, uh, and he wouldn't listen and he wouldn't do what I wanted him to do. And I tried everything to get him to do and act the way that I thought he should do and act. And I've tried everything. I have tried everything. I promise you I've tried everything. I promise you. And, uh, and you know, and, 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 and the reason why I try all those things 
and, and I'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow or what, what that entails. But the reason why I try all those things is because for the majority of my life, those things worked for me. I mean, I could usually get people to do what I wanted them to do, and I could usually get the results that I wanted eventually because manipulation works for me and threatening works for me and pleading works for me and all those things I can usually get my way. But it doesn't work when it comes to alcoholism. It just does not work. But I, the majority of my life, I, it, it worked for me. I mean, that's how I learned it. If I, if it didn't work, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have been doing it. But I, but that, those are some, like Cliff said, I thought they were assets. I learned those were character defects. But for a while, they did work for me. You know, I, I mean, I understand when people say that character defects are just an asset that has gone to the extreme. That's really what has happened. And so, you know, we had, uh, you know, it was not pretty in our house. I will just tell you, we had some really ugly, awful, horrible fights. And we said horrible things to each other. And we did horrible things to each other. And um, and I don't think that's any different than it is in a lot of alcoholic homes. And so, um, I will just tell you, when I got here, he was the problem. He was the problem. It wasn't me. He was the problem. And if he would just, if he would get sober, everything would be all right. But like he talked about, I will tell you what I have figured out is that if both people are not grounded in some sort of spiritual progress, whatever that is, whether it be church or AA or Al-Anon or whatever, but if you, if you aren't grounded in something, one of you will outgrow the other spiritually. And, and you will grow apart. I've seen it over and over again. I've seen it over and over again. Does that mean that they're going to split up? Not necessarily, but I can tell you I've seen households that one has outgrown the other, and they're not very happy that they're together. And it's not, you know, and I just don't want to be miserable today. And so, um, you know, I, I, I knew about God before I got here. I'm going to tell you, I grew up in church, and, uh, and I knew everything there was to know about God. I could quote the Bible. I had my favorite scriptures and all that. <clears throat> but I had no relationship with God. And I didn't really understand that till I got here. And I just want you to hear this. That's not the church's fault. It's not the church's fault. I just couldn't hear it. I was not ready to receive the message. That's all there is to it. I'm going to tell you there are people who said the same church that I did, heard the same sermon on the same pew, and they got God was loving, kind, and tolerant, and I got he was judgmental and scary and vengeful, and one of these days I'm going to have to answer to him, and I am not going to measure up, and that's going to be it. Not the church's fault. I just couldn't hear it. And I got here, and I learned about it, got of my understanding. And... uh and I'm going to tell you, when I heard you got to, you know, create your own concept of God, I thought, oh, my gosh, you heathenous pigs are all going to hell. And because uh, I didn't understand. I mean, I was pretty narrow-minded when I got here. And uh, and thank God I was here. I stayed here long enough to listen. And uh, and we did. We, you know, I started going through my, I started getting in Al-Anon, and I started my recovery program close started at AA and we got better and but we had but listen the transition period was awful I mean it was hard for a while I mean you don't just get into your programs and then magically you have a perfect marriage it doesn't work that way I wish it did but it did not and we had some you know we still had some ugly fights after sobriety after recovery and uh and and you know he's right 
if my relationship with God isn't good or higher power, whatever you choose to call it, we don't care. Um, that nothing else is going to be good. None of my other relationships is going to be good. And my sponsor had me get my own book, my own big book. We have we have our own literature in Al-Anon. We do not take the big book to Al-Anon meeting. I just it is not conference approved literature for Al-Anon. Al-Anon has some great literature. How Al-Anon works is my favorite piece of our literature. I love it. And but she had me get a copy of my own big book, and she said, "I want you to read this at home, and I want you to go through and and, and read this because this." Because it is the authority. I mean, it, it is the book that tells you about alcoholism. I mean, you kind of need to know that if you're going to be in a relationship with somebody who's alcoholic. You kind of need to know what alcoholism is. And so this is the authority on that. You probably should read it. And so I did. I got my own copy. <clears throat> but I'm going to tell you, still, it was his fault. Cliff and I do workshops a lot. And, the way I, and a lot of times we're asked to do um, the family afterwards. And... Um, I have a th- third edition big book. I'm not giving it up. I'm just sticking with the third edition. It's, I like it. Anyway, I have a third edition. And, and so my sponsor, when she told me to get my own big book, she said, I want you to go in and highlight anything that's important to you, you resonate with, you know. Apparently, I did that. I don't remember uh, doing it, but I'm sure that I, but I did. And so years later, years later, uh, Cliff and I were asked to do uh, a workshop. And I got out, the, I got out the, my big book. Because we need to review, since we're doing it on the family afterwards, need to review. And I look, and I'm going to tell you, on several pages, the only thing that I had outlined was, the alcoholic should know that he is to blame what befell his own. That's it. <laughs> Nothing else. That's it. That's the only thing that apparently was important to me at the time. The alcoholic is to blame for what, should know he is to blame for what befell his own. Because that's how I, that's what I came in here with. Everything was his fault. And we start, so we start trying to put this deal together and we start trying, uh, to figure this out. And I'm going to tell you those traditions are huge. You know, I, I will tell you what happened for us is, and I think, again, not uncommon, when one is the alcoholic and the other is the sober person, um, or the person not drinking in our case, really. And one, one becomes the responsible, responsible person and we become over responsible, to be honest with you. And it's a gradual slide. What happens is, uh, you know, maybe he for, he he forgets to pick up milk at the store, or he for you know he forgets, you know that um, we're, we've got something going on that night with the kids, and so I make sure the kids get there, and I make sure that we we have dinner on the table, and I make sure that, and then you know what happened with us is you know he stopped working, and and I and I started picking up the slack, and so I'm paying the bills. And I'm making sure the house is clean. And I'm making sure the kids are where they're supposed to go. And I'm making sure that everything, because if it looks good on the outside, you know how important that is. And so, but we became more responsible. And that's what had happened for us. I had taken over the responsibility and I had done, I was doing it all. I was making all the decisions. I was doing it all. And, and again, I think that that's a natural thing that happens when you're dealing with active, active alcoholism. And what happened is Cliff got sober. And one day, I mean, this is an example, and this, but this is kind of what happened, honestly. <clears throat> and I, you know, I do my weekly grocery store run that I've done 5,000 times, and, I, and he comes in, and he starts helping me put groceries away, and he goes, why, why are we buying Lay's potato chips? I, I like ruffles. 
And I'm like, I've been buying lace potato chips for four years. Why do you care now? And he was like, you know, they're okay, but I'd rather have ruffles. And I'm like incensed at first. How dare you? What are you thinking? And, what, and, and then what I realized is that he's now a sober member. And this is his house, too. And he eats the groceries, too. And he gets a say. And he had never had a say, say for years. Because, frankly, he wasn't coherent <laughs> or conscious. So, and didn't care. Didn't care. I mean, did not care. But now he cares. And so now he gets a say. And I got to tell you, if you're somebody of my type, giving up that control and letting them have a say is an adjustment. Let me just say that. And and so I had to I had to learn that he's part of this. What's you know what's for the good of the whole family? You know what is unifying about this? What is the greater good here? What? How big of a deal is it to buy a different brand of potato chips? Do I really care? Or we can buy two brands. It's really weird. Um, but um, so you know, I, he gets to say that he gets to be a part, and he get he now is ready and, and able and willing to be involved in this family and in the decision making. And I have to allow that to happen. And that was a big adjustment. I mean, it sounds stupid, but it is. It was a big adjustment. And so, um, and you know, there was, there, those things kind of started happening as we go. And we, and I will just tell you, I have, I never, I am not one that would consult him about buying or purchasing anything. I mean, I just do whatever. And he wouldn't care. I mean, I'm going to tell you, this is the honest to God truth. I could go, hey, I'm going to go buy a car today. And he'd go, okay. I mean, he just wouldn't, he just wouldn't care. But that's not the point. The point is that I need to consult him. It needs to be a group decision. We need to talk about it. Informed, conscious decision. So, we were, we needed a new bed frame. We had this metal bed frame and it kept scratching up the walls. And every time I'd make the bed, it'd move and scratch up the walls. And I was like, I, we need a new bed frame, a new headboard. And he was like, okay. And so I was looking through a couple of weeks later and I picked one out. I had it in my cart, getting ready to order that sucker. And I thought, huh. Maybe I should ask him if he likes this bed frame. It is going to be on his bed too. Maybe I should consult him and see if he wants, if he likes this headboard. And that was new behavior for me because I'd always just done what I wanted. I'd never consulted him because over responsible. I can take care of everything. Thank you very much. And I'll never forget one time I called my sponsor and she said I was telling her whatever thing of the day that I was complaining about. She said, can I ask you something? And I said, yeah. She goes, can you just look down at your chest for me? And I said, what? She goes, look down at your chest for me right now. And I'm on the phone with her, which I thought was odd. And I was like, okay. She goes, what do you see on there? I was like, nothing. I'm just wearing a T-shirt. She's like, is there anything on that T-shirt? And I said, no. She goes, oh, so there's not an S for superwoman on your shirt. Good to on your chest. Good to know. Good to know. You don't have to do it all is her point. So... She's wise. Anyway, <clears throat> so I, I have to consider him. I have to consider him. He gets to be a part of this today. And those are things that we had to work out. Um, I will, you know, we're going to talk about this. It's a very uncomfortable topic, but we're going to talk about it. And 
Cliff, I know this is going to be shocking to you, but when he was doing those other things, um, he had a little bit of problem with adult entertainment videos, let's just say. And, um, and, and I know all the guys are going, oh crap. Porno. <laughs> all the guys are going, don't talk about it, don't talk about it, let's not talk about it. So one of the things I said to him before we get married is I said, that's not going to be a part of our marriage. I, I don't want that. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to. And listen, and and he'll tell you this. This is not, I'm not saying anything to do this to embarrass him. He knows. Um, when I told him that we had to get rid of this, he had videos. Back then we had videos. It's not like how it is today where you can just get on a computer or your phone. But anyway, so I told him, I said, he had to get rid of all those. So we were... We were going to box them up and take them out to a trash bin. And, uh, and so, to tell you how bad it was, we had three banker boxes full of videos that we took to the dumpster. Somebody found those and was probably really happy. But anyway. <laughs> so, that was one of my deals, is that was one of my boundaries, was that we're not going to get married until... You know, this is out of out of our lives, and you know, and I'm going to tell you, got rid of the videos. It was still a problem for a while. I mean, it it was it took a while to get to to get through that, but it's a but it's prevalent today, not in our marriage, but it is prevalent today in these rooms. We hear about it all the time. I sponsor girls. He sponsors guys. They come to us with that all the time, all the time. It's a problem. And you know, what um, we had learned to do is, what is the, we had to decide, is this disrespectful to our marriage? Is it disrespectful to each other? And, um, and, and I'm going to let him talk about it more, but that's one of the things that we had, that we had to work through. And I, you know, the three things that people don't want to talk about, finances, sex, and they can't communicate. Those are the three problems that we have, that are in marriage. And uh, one of the things that we have decided that we had to do a long time ago, what we talked about a long time ago, is that we'd be transparent about everything. You know, we don't have any secrets from each other. Judy talked about this before, about, you know, people who buy things and hide it from their mm-hmm. husbands. And I used to do that. I used to do that. And, I, and again... I don't like to be wrong, still don't like to be wrong. I, 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 you'll hear this tomorrow, but if you're here, and I don't like to be wrong. And so, and, and, and so I, I'm a really good manipulator. I'm a really good justifier of, of my actions. And so what I would do is I would buy something and I would put it in the closet and hang it up. And then I would wait a couple of weeks and I would wear it. And then he would ask me, is that a new shirt? And I'd say, it's been hanging in the closet. <laughs> Which is technically not a lie, but not exactly the truth either. But we're transparent today. We talk about, we talk about everything. And we, and, you know, today I don't care. I, I'm like, Judy, I'll buy it. I'll show you. I don't care. He, there's packages that show up at our door daily. I will just tell you Amazon is my best friend. And so he sees stuff all the time. I mean, I don't hide anything from him. We have um, our bank accounts are online. He's a signer on my account. I'm a signer on his account. He can look at anything that I purchased. He can look at any statement. He can look at it. I don't care. I don't care. We don't have any secrets today. It's the only way that I think that... We can do it. We, I, I can't, we have to be transparent. I just, I can't have secrets from him. Because even if it's a little secret, then that makes it okay to have the next secret. 
And so we just don't do that today. And it, this has been, a, I mean, the things that we've had to go through have been a process. And it takes time. And it takes a lot of prayer. And it takes a lot of trust. And, you know, and like Judy was talking about trust earlier, we, you know, trust is one of those things that, you know, I'm sorry, y'all alcoholics kill me. You guys have been sober 37 seconds and then think, well, why can't, why can't I have the checkbook back? I mean, I've been sober three whole days. I've been doing good. It, it, it takes us time. We, you know, yes, for four years you have run rampant, but I'm going to tell you, it's going to take a little longer than three days for me, you know, to the destruction has happened for a, a long period of time. And it and it's going to take a little bit longer for for me to trust you again and to know that you that you're doing exactly what you say you're doing and and that I know that and so you know trust is not freely given anymore trust is something that has to be earned and I'm I'm you know I got to know I, I got to know that you mean what you say I, I got to be able to see and I don't and I don't go by what you say I go by what you do. I've learned that a long time ago. Watch, watch your feet. You know, watch their feet. Let's see what they're doing. Okay. Fairness back to me. Oh, there we go. Um, in the in the book, it talks about uh, through force of circumstance. In the, talking about spouses. Uh, through force of circumstances, not what Lori signed up for, but through force of circumstances, she took on roles she was did not bargain for that she did not sign up for. You know, uh, it also said that through no fault of their own, uh, things alcoholism. Uh, my alcoholism put her in a position where she became the primary breadwinner, the primary payer of bills, all that kind of stuff. And our book says something like that. It uh, says a long period of reconstruction is ahead. And so, I think the three, uh, Lori identified the three big hurdles in relationships, uh, that particularly in ours, but in working with other people to jump through is, and Judy does such a great job covering communication, but it is the pivotal point, I think, in most relationships because if I can't communicate the other two are they're going to wipe, be wiped off anyway if I can't talk to you and communicate with you uh, my hopes, my dreams, my thoughts my concerns, my desires I'm in trouble I remember uh, a few years ago uh, we got called to uh, do a sex workshop and uh, I said well Sure. I mean, why not? And, uh, I said, I can, we can do an hour on sex. They go, no, no, four hours. Four hours. They have a lot of ability, but uh, thoughts about our ability. And at the end of four hours, I was thinking, I need another hour. I'm not done. Uh, because once we begin to explore those areas in our life, we find that uh, how much there is about that. And... Um, Broken, defective human relationships, 12 and 12 talks about, big problem for alcoholics. So communication, sex, and money. But those are not problems exclusive to alcoholics. We are just forced to talk about it in order to sustain 
sobriety to us, or in the Alamon's case, or to sustain sanity for us, right? We have, we're forced to discuss those if we are to do what our book talked about, live happy, joyous, and free. Which is the only place in our text that tells us what God really wants for us. For surely God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. Step, step 12 promises us an awakening. I become awake. I become awake to this uh, fellowship of the Spirit. I'm now acting in the realm of the Spirit. And so in that realm of the Spirit are where things like love, service exist. They don't exist for me when I was in the plane before. They just didn't exist for me. I become aware of those because I have this awakening. I'm going to tell you, it's really my belief, and it's just my belief. It doesn't have to be yours. But I believe if the person sitting across the table is desperate enough, a monkey with cue cards could help them get sober. You do this, and then you do this, and then you do this. The trick is not getting sober. I mean, you just follow the, the, the Brady Crocker cake recipe, something will happen to you. I've watched people come in here saying, that's not going to work, and they've been sober a long time. Just if you do these things, something will happen to you. If you give yourself completely to the process and just say, okay, we'll see what will happen. Something will happen. The real trick here is staying awake. Staying awake. Because everybody in this room who's been here any appreciable amount of time can tell you stories of people who've come to AA, had a spiritual awakening, been engaged in AA, go back to sleep, walk out the door, never come back. I don't know where they go. So I have to figure out how to stay awake here. Because if I'm going to engage in the things that we're talking about and having a relationship... I have to be awake. If I'm awake, I can become aware. Aware of what? Aware of my behavior. Aware of my reactions. Because I'm oblivious to that. Why I'm selfish and self-centered. That dominates my life. But once I'm awake and trying to live this spiritual way of life, suddenly, things like communication, communication in all areas of my life, communication about my sex life and communication about my financial life become increasingly important if I'm to sustain what our book talks about in the chapter How It Works. We claim spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. I think one of the biggest procrastination phrases in Alcoholics Anonymous is the one that people get wrong. Well, it's progress, not perfection. That's not what it says. I think if you're going to quote the book, you ought to at least try to get it right. And the reason I think it's so important to get it right is because if you're in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, or if you're out talking to people, there's a newcomer there, and you say things, goofy things that don't match up with the book, they'll believe that. If you say things like, well, it's progress, not perfection, leaving off the part, it's spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. Newcomers believe that stuff. If you're if you've been here five years and you start saying what the book says and the book don't say nothing about that, people in the room will believe you. They'll think that's true. So I have to be really careful about what the book says, what I think it says, and what it actually says. So I have to, t- but I have to take those principles and begin to operate under those in my life in order to stay away. I come here really broken. I was exposed to pornography really young. I have an older brother, and I have this skewed relationship about sex. I have an old idea about sex, and uh, I had, and it is a, it was a tough nut. I don't consider my, myself a sex addict any more than I just considered myself a drug addict. I never, I, 
I did some drugs, but booze was always on the table. I don't consider myself a drug addict. I don't consider myself a sex addict. But I can tell you I have some broken pieces in me that revolves around sex. And I can tell you that because of that, it causes, it has caused me defective human relationships. But I've never been willing to really look at those and look at that piece or more importantly, go to God with that piece till I got this till I found a relationship that was important enough to me to want to do that. And there's, if you uh, struggle with that, there's a brokenness about us. So certainly a brokenness about me. That in and of myself, it's like trying to fix my alcoholism. I'm, you know, I can't fix a sick mind with a sick mind. I can't fix a broken part of me if I'm going to outthink it. Because the book tells me the problem centers in my mind. So there's no way I'm going to be able to fix that, fix that problem. I think I'm going to outsmart it, outrun it, outgun it. When Lori said, hey, we're going to throw these away, what I said to her was well, we're going to throw them away out of town where it'll be difficult for me to go back and get them. Because I know who I am. I know who I am. And uh, I can't tell you that that has not been struggles for me since then. It's not like I dumped them all and the pixie dust got scattered. It, was done. it has been a continued process of prayer, meditation, conversation about us. I think that's one of AA's dirty little secrets. Sex in AA. It's our dirty little secret here. Looks something like this. And this is, this is, uh, destructive to the relationship. You know, I go to an AA meeting. I'm happily married, trying to live a good life. And I sit next to the little cute newcomer who comes in who just hangs on my every word. I'm just godly, you know. I'm just that. And, uh, she says nice things to me and I compliment her before long. She says, well, can I have your number? I'd sure like to just bounce some things off of you. And next thing I know, she's sending me text at night. And the next thing I know, there's some pictures coming across that. And I'm getting high, but I'm not having to change my sobriety rate. It's AA's dirty little secret. Don't think it doesn't happen in the rooms all the time. All the time. Probably our biggest problem in alcoholics now is other drinking. <laughs> is that. It's what we have here. The inability to be transparent enough and honest with your sponsors. Talk about what's really going on. Why? Because I get something from that. There's a broken piece of me to where I get something out of that. And so, you know, when we talk about our sex lives and alcoholics and honest with our partners, I, there's a big piece of transparency that, that has to transpire. One of the things that breached the relationship with Lori and I was when I sat her down one day, I said, listen, here's the deal. I've got to be able to come to you and talk to you about this and you not guilt and shame me if I, if I come to you. I've got to be willing to come here and you not punish me. Because I'm defective in this area. And I know I'm defective here. And I'm doing the best I can. And, uh, you know, since I was able to get transparent and honest about that, that really hadn't been a big problem. It's funny how that works. I believed the whole time before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that I could quit drinking anytime I wanted to. Believe that. I could quit anytime. And there was a moment when I sat across with Don, I thought, I can't stop. And the moment I knew I couldn't stop, I've never had another drink. There's something about that. 
the moment I'm willing to reconcile my powerlessness and turn that to the one who has all power and talk about that, the problem gets removed. So I have to be honest about that. Most importantly, with the guy whose pants I could pee in. I've got to be honest with him. You know, I have to know who I am. I have to understand who I am. And I have to understand my brokenness. And I have to be able to communicate that to my partner. Because the person that I hurt most, of course, is generally me. It's me that suffers. Every time we do something that is contrary to our spiritual principles, we chip away another layer. We throw more in the backpack and once again begin to block out the subtle of the spirit. People talk about that is the hole in my soul. We talk about that a lot. You hear it in the rooms of alcoholism. Well, it's a God-sized hole and it's black. And I suppose that's one way to look at it. I can't reconcile that with the book. The book talks about deep down inside every man, woman, child is a fundamental idea of God. I don't think the piece is missing. What I think is I've stacked up fear, uh, resentments, bad sex conduct, harm to others. I've stacked it up so high that it's blocked out the sunlight and it's dark and it appears to be a hole because there's no sunlight. And so if I if I unclog myself in four and five where the sunlight is back, what happens when I become when I don't be truthful with myself, when I don't talk to my sponsor, when I'm not being transparent with my spouse, what happens? I begin to stack that up again. I begin to collect it and the darkness comes again. The darkness, you can call it defects, uh, resentment, sin, whatever you want to call it, the darkness, it's just a darkness that comes. And it begins to stack up and block that out. When it begins to block that out, I become a secret person. I begin to live what the book talks about, the double life of the alcoholic. And so transparency here in the, in the being willing to talk about my flawed nature. I'd be almost willing to bet this, that everybody in this room, the book says this, we all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. And so those of you who humans out there who might have a sex problem, uh, uh, the hardest person to talk to about that is your spouse. The hardest person to talk about that is with your partner. I can just share, it's my hardest person to talk to about that. Because somewhere tagged to that, I have some old ideas that if I talk to her about that, it's shameful, it's dirty, it's, you know, whatever. And I can't say that to her. But my when coming from a position of love and setting her down and being transparent with her, when I talk to her about that, she she has compassion for me. And we can talk about those things. Our book also says if sex becomes a problem, we just go work harder with more people. We just keep working with more people. Money. I don't know anything that uh, besides sex that makes it tough on relationships more than finances, you know. There's mine and there's hers. We don't have joint account, but we don't, you know, it's my, what I've discovered is that, you know, everything that I have is a direct, direct result of what's been on, given to me and entrusted me from the God of my understanding. I don't have anything that's mine. And Lori, I'm, I think I can speak for her in this regard that she feels the same way. 
that everything that we have, whatever little bit of stuff we've been able to accumulate since the disaster, because if there's been a if there's been a consistent problem in our relationship, it's been I'm the biggest disunifier. I told you guys that last night. I mean, I'm just a mess. Uh, but it, but I recognize that anything that any thing that I have today is just strictly a gift. It's it's just on loan. It's passing through. I mean, I, I've got it for a minute. I'm supposed to be a good steward of that. And I don't hide by that. I don't have secret accounts. I don't uh, stash cash away and not tell her. I don't have a rainy day fund in case all this goes bad. I don't have a contingency plan. You know, I don't have a go bag. You know, if stuff goes bad, I'm out of here. You know, I don't have that. I have transparency in the relationship in terms of money. And if we have money problems, if I get financially insecure, which I am prone to do on occasion, I come to her and say, can we have a few Amazon? Can the Amazon guys not show up here quite so often? (laughs) She knows what that means. She knows that I'm having some issues, that I'm struggling. I just need the packages not to show up every day. Maybe a couple times a week this week, you know, something like that. But, I, but I've got to be honest, because here's what happens if it doesn't. I begin to build a resentment. I just begin to, I begin to harbor ill feelings. Because I've had this conflict that I wanted to have because she did for me, and I'm, I have that, I have that conflicting emotions. I'm, I feel guilty because those times that she provided for me when I had nothing. And the truth is of trying to be a good steward. And so one day she says, pass the pepper, and I say, God dang, you've ruined my life. You know, that's us. <laughs> so I try to avoid that. <laughs> and just talk to her about it. I'm, at, I'm having a moment. You know, This is what's going on with me. I'm having a moment. And the truth about it is this, and I think this is a fair statement. We've always had enough. And I don't mean we, us two. We have always had enough. Since I've been to Alcoholics Anonymous, I've always had something to eat. Always. Every time, ever since I've been here. People would take me out and they'd say, we're going to go to lunch today. And I'd say, I don't have any money. They'd say, we'd ask you that. <laughs> we didn't ask if you had any money. We said, do you want to go to lunch? I've always had a place to sleep. In the moments when, when Lori is uh, rendering me homeless, uh, there's always been someone that would allow me a place to sleep. Well, that's just true. I've always had a place to have some, so I've had something to eat. I've had a place to sleep. I've always had what I needed. And the truth is that we've always had enough. All of us. It's our wants. It's my wants. If I get my wants tangled up in my needs, I suffer. I suffer. Needlessly, I suffer. If I can keep my if I can keep my eyes focused on the power that guides me in my life, if I can keep my eyes on that and keep my feet moving in that direction, you know, all my life I kept running from something. I got to run to get this, to do that. I got to alcohol synonymous and I began to run to something. If I can continue my feet moving in that direction, as long as I focus on that purpose and I, and I continue to help his kids, you know, 
Lori and I did, we did just fine. And even though I may think the sky is falling and it's not failed yet, you know, uh, I don't know how long I've been running kind of my own shop for doing my own thing in my legal career for 35 years, something like that. I've been going broke for 35 years. That's just how you do it. You know? It's going to go broke this year. This is the year. You know? It hasn't gone yet. My experience just tells me that's not it, but yet I find times that I get that way. So, effective communication. Got to talk to my partner about what's going on in here. Even the places where it, I would think, because this is what my brain tells me, you should be doing better than this. You've been here 20 years. And I don't know about your big book, but the back of mine doesn't have a graph that says that 20 years, you should be spiritually right here. You know? I just am where I am. And when I can accept that with myself, when I can get my ego at bay and be vulnerable and, and uh, go to God and go to my sponsor and go to my spouse and be transparent with her about what that looks like for me. You know, I, I can tell you this is that I, I don't think I've ever encountered a problem when I've come to her that she hasn't been 100% supportive, no matter what that was. No matter how difficult my ego said this is going to be talked to her about, I don't think I can, I don't think I've ever had something I brought to her where she wasn't 100% supportive when I came with the problem and a suggested solution. We're going to do a wrap up and then we're going to take questions. So, um, I will be honest, our life is pretty good today. And if we make it to next month, we'll be married 23 years. And we were, and we've been together 27. And, um, and we really do have a good life today. And that's only as a direct result of our programs and the God of our understanding. And, and everything that we have today is because of that, everything. And it amazes me that the people, people will call us up and say, hey, can you, can you tell us, can you take us through traditions or can you tell us uh, what we can do to work on our relationship? And if you, and when you hear our story, you will understand. I mean, we're the ones that were screaming, yelling, and cussing each other, and you want relationship advice from us. That's crazy. Um, but that's because this program has taught us how to be good partners to each other, how to be respectful of each other. Cliff tells this story. It's one of my favorite stories. He never he never tells it as often as I want him to, but it really does. Um, it really does kind of simplify and kind of keep kind of put it in perspective for me. So I'm going to tell it. I won't tell it as good as him, but I'm going to tell it anyway. There was a drunk, and he was on the boardwalk, walking down the boardwalk, and he wanted to be sober. He wanted to be sober more than anything in the world. And then God appears to him, and he says, okay, here, you want to be sober? He said, how much money you got? And the guy goes, I got 20 bucks on me. He said, give me the 20 bucks, and you'll be sober. And the guy wants to be sober more than anything in the world, so he has got 20 bucks. And boom, he's sober. And as he's walking away, he thinks, stops, and he says, you know, God, I know I gave you the 20 bucks, but I, I don't have any gas in my car. And God goes, car? You didn't tell me you had a car. He's like, if you want to be sober, i got to have the car, too. And the drunk thinks about it a while, and he's like, okay, well, yeah, that's fine. You can have the car. And he says, okay. So God gets the car, and he's got the 20 bucks. And the guy starts to walk away again. He goes, but how am I going to get to my job? He goes, 
job? You mean you got a job too? You didn't tell me you had a job. And he's like, well, yeah, I got a job. You know, it's how I got the car. It's how I got the 20 bucks. He goes, well, I got to have the job too. Durant thinks about it. He's like, okay, you can have the job. He's like, but how am I going to provide for our family? And he's like, and pay for my house. He goes, oh, my God, you got a family and a house? You didn't tell me any of this. All I knew about was the 20 bucks. I got to have it all, dude. I got to have the family. I got to have the house. I got to have the car. I got to have the 20 bucks. I got to have it all. And the drunk thinks about it. He wants to be sober more than anything. So he says, okay. And he starts to walk away, and God says, wait, wait, wait. You know, if I leave you like this, you're going to be alone and you're going to, you don't have anything to do. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my car and I'm going to give you my family and I'm going to give you my job and I'm going to give you my 20 bucks and you're going to be a good steward of that and you're going to take care of it for me and you can be sober. And that's what it is. Everything that we have here is because we've been given that to us. And it's not ours. We're just supposed to be good stewards of it. I mean, the family that I have today is not the family that I came in here with. My family was broken. My, you know, our family was a mess when we got here. But the family I have today is God's family, and, 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 and I get to be good stewards of that. And I get to be good stewards of... Uh, of everything that I have today. That's my job. That's what our jobs are here. So thank you for having us. If you have any questions, this is the time, and we will answer anything. We are open books. Honestly, we are. Lord knows we've been asked everything. So if anybody has any questions or anything, this is your time. Oh, we have one over here. Oh, in here. Okay, good. Yeah, Marshall, alcoholic. Thank you so much for your uh, your pitch. Um, you know, in the big book it says... Uh, in the sexual inventory, it says, God alone can judge our sex situation. Counsel with persons is often desirable, but let God be the final judge. So, of course, I want to interpret that meaning, well, I can come up with my own rules, right? But it is kind of unique in the big book because it doesn't point towards a particular value system like the seven deadly sins or something. So I'm interested in how you, you take that passage. Well, I think you've got to read all that. you got to start back at the very first of that when it starts talking about the sex inventory. It says uh, some, it runs to extremes. Some would have no flavor for their fare and some would have a sweet pepper diet. And then the next line says, we want to stay out of that. That's none of our business. You know, whether you like boys, whether you like men, women, or small farm animals, that's no business of ours. It's no business of ours. What it says is in that next over that next paragraph down is how have what is the what is behind the motivation of those things? Everything comes back to the same thing. There, there's like eight questions it asks us in that next paragraph. You know, did I did I unnecessarily arouse jealousy and suspicion? Who did I harm? When I begin to look at those questions, it all falls back, way back to what I began this whole discussion with, with step three. What my job in the sex inventory is, once again, to find that I've made decisions based on self that has placed me in a position to be hard. You know, the inventory process, when we really look at it, it's not really that much different from resentments to fears, 
You know, fears is like an open book test. It's a trick question. It asks us, why do we have these fears? And so we'll spend hours writing up why we have these fears. When if we'll just read the next line, it says, is it because we've relied on self and not God? I mean, it's an open book test for Christ's sakes. I mean, you know. What the point of the exercises are is to find self in those. How, what our, what our sex preferences is, which is really what we're talking about, it really makes little difference to us here. Matter of fact, it says we stay out of that. We don't care. What we want to know is what is it that's driving you in that regard? And the point of the exercise is to point you back once again to self, to see once again how self has defeated me. How once again self has caused me these problems. Matter of fact, when you flip the page, it says uh, something like, uh, you know, if we fall short of these ideas, will we drink again? And it says something like, uh, we don't necessarily think so. Depends on our motives. It says if, our, if we are honestly sorry for what we have done, and we ask God to forgiveness, then we're quite sure you won't. But also up there it says we don't give into hysterical thinking. We don't go, I don't go to an AA meeting and say, I got a sex problem and throw it on the table. If there are 30 people in a room, guess how many different opinions I'll get? 30. I was taught now, Clark Sinamas, I bring my solution to the meeting. I take, I got one person I bring my problem to, my sponsor. And I sit and counsel with him or her, whichever it might be, and get it. And if he doesn't know what he'll say is, you know, I don't have experience with that. Why don't you go talk to, to Terry? He's had some experience in that. So I think when it looks at that, I think you have to read that in total and uh, understand that we're not we're not the arbiter of sex conduct. What we're looking for is where self has once again failed us. That's the point of the exercise of all the inventories, is for me to see out loud that, oh my God, it's me still. This is still me. I'm using sex to feel better, I'm using sex to feel part of, I'm using sex uh, to get something out of it for me. And uh, I think that's the point of those uh, converse, of that exercise. Hello, my name is Kareem. Um, you were saying something about wants and needs. In my personal experience, I believe that's, uh, that's important. When I was uh, using alcohol and using um, <laughs> drugs, <laughs> um, I weigh the need, I weigh the wants more than my needs. And I want to ask you, in your personal experience, how important is that with partner also? How the, the, the wants outweigh the needs or how it's supposed to be balanced? Okay, that's a great, I think I understand the question. Hey, how do you, how do you figure out here? How do I, how do I figure out wants and needs and balance those in a relationship or just balance them in my AA life, right? How do I do that? I think that's a great question. My wants are, uh, they could be my dreams, they could be maybe even my desires. But my wants are generally come from a place, sometimes a good place, but for me, I know I have to look at those. You know, when we get back to steps uh, 10 and 11 in the book, uh, it begins to, we begin to really take a hard look at our motives. Book talks over and over again, and particularly about our motives. What, what's the motive behind this? You know, back in, uh, I think it is, uh, working with others perhaps. Uh, it talks about, uh, you know, I can go anywhere on earth that God, that, that, that anybody else can go so long as my motives are good. 
And what is my purpose of going there? Am I going there to, do I have some legitimate purpose to be there or am I trying to steal a little vicarious pleasure? So when I look at wants and needs, I have to look at that from the standpoint, you know, it's like I, I want a new car, but can I afford that? So I have, a, I have a, I have a relationship and I have to look, you know, Lori gives this example. I'm going to steal some of her thunder. I'm sure she'll use this later, but she says something like, uh, you know, if I can't pay my electric bill, but I can go out and buy a new pair of shoes, I'm not practicing these principles in all my papers. So when I look at my wants, I have to balance those from an unselfish standpoint. What's the reason I want this? You know, I've never been at, me personally, I have, I sponsor guys like this. Uh, I just, it's just never been me. I'm not a guy that will go out and buy something to feel better. That's just not my gizmo. But I sponsor guys that can't afford things and will go get it because that makes them feel better. I want it. Well, why do I want it? What is the, what is the motivation? Gets us back to the sex inventory. This is all part of the, 10 and 11 and trying to ferret out and grow that spiritual condition and spiritual life. What's my motivation then? Wants can sometimes come from a spot of very selfish, self-centered position. You know, just like prayer, it talks about, you know, I can't pray for something I want. But if I can pray for something, you know, you know, God just help my family grow spiritually. Rather than praying for my own selfish needs, if I pray for spiritual growth for my family and we all grow spiritually, it's not necessarily a selfish prayer. So I think I can balance that. Uh, I have to really look, and when I look at my wants is, most of my life I've operated on my wants and not my needs. I'll go because I want that. You know, I want, my emotions have drugged me around my entire life. I have this feeling of anxiousness, so I just go do something so I don't feel that anymore. Drinking was real good. If drinking's not handy, I'll go get a new girlfriend. I get this, I've done this before, I'll, and I've said this in front of Lori, so I'm not telling tales. I mean, sometimes Lori will do something and I just, I get mad. And you know the first thought that comes to me, my God, I need a girlfriend. You know, that's a fleeting thought, because uh, I like to live, and uh, so uh, I enjoy living, so I discount it. But, you know, I have to look at where that comes from. It's, a, it's the immediate needs to pause to get God in the equation. And I'm not acting on my emotions that have drugged me around forever, but, you know, try to find that spot in there where... You know, is this, what's my motive on doing this? Am I doing this to look good so I'll feel better? God, old man told me a long time ago, said, you know, Cliff, if you want to feel better, go to a meeting. If you want to do better, take the steps. Take the steps. You want to hear from her too, right? No, you don't know. Oh. My name is Kenneth. I'm alcohol. Thank you. Thank you guys for your transparency and sharing your personal story. That, that was amazing. Um, good stuff. This is shifting gears a little bit maybe, but I was wondering if you guys do work on relationships and, and talk about sex and, and relationships. What message would you have to people new to the program uh, early in recovery about re-entering relationships, dating, and, and that type of thing? Thank you. This is well, I'm gonna let her talk about it, and I'll give you my spin. Look, I think 
I've heard so many things on this subject. I know I've heard in AA, and I'm going to let him talk about it, that there's a general rule that's not written down anywhere and not in any literature, that you wait a year before you get sober and you get sober, be sober for a year before you're in a relationship. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't think that, again, we're not the arbitrator of anybody's dating life. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the right answer is because I don't... Who knows? I, I can't say. I mean, I will tell you, I know people who uh, have dated, uh, who've met each other early in both of their recovery, and they've made it fine. They've been married forever, you know? I've also seen a ton of disasters in that, in that same thing. I think what is the most important, I don't think there's a time frame. This is just my opinion. I don't think there's a time frame. I really don't. But I do think that you have to be spiritually fit. I do think that you have to have the relationship with your higher power first, and I think that has to be spiritually fit before you can ever have a relationship anywhere else. There is a book that I read that is non-conference-approved literature, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, but there's a book that I read, and it, but it has a lot of good Al-Anon stuff in it, I will tell you. And one of the th- one of the lines that is in one of the books, and I'm going to tell you, I heard this, I read this early in recovery. But one of the lines is, "Until um, until I can have a good relationship with God and myself, I'll never be able to have a, a relation, good relationship with anybody else." And that and that that has held true for me. So I think until. I am spiritually fit, and I, whatever, however long that takes for me to feel comfortable in my own skin. Because, because, and again, this is just part of my story. For the majority of my life, I never felt comfortable in my own skin, and I always had to have a relationship to make me feel better. I was always looking outside for, and as long as I had him in my life, whoever him was, and I was okay. I mean, that kind of, it was false. It was not real, but that's made me feel okay for a while. I was never comfortable in my own skin until I got here. And after I started working this program and went through these steps, uh, actually even before that, I started feeling okay with me. And when I start, so, and what that did for me is realize that I can rely on God and that I don't have to have somebody else in my life. I can just be okay with who I am and where I am. And, and when I'm okay with me and I'm okay with God, then I'm okay to have a relationship with somebody else. Um, but until that happens, um, you know, again, uh, until I'm okay with me and with God, I'm never going to be, nothing else is going to make me fit, is going to fix me. <clears throat> Cliff tells people, I uh, used to tell people all the time, they'd say, you, he, they, she, he'd say, you know how I know Lori uh, loves me? And they'd say, how? He goes, because she doesn't need me for a damn thing. And that's true because <laughs> it would, as horrible as it would be to lose him, I mean, if something were to happen, it would be awful and I would be forever changed and everything but I don't have to have him to feel okay today. I mean, I don't I don't need him today. I want him, big difference, want him, love having him around, but he, I don't need him. Does that make sense? Does that kind of answer your question? Let him do that. Do that so. 
I'm going to give you a two-piece puzzle. I can tell you life before the sheriff and life after the sheriff. That's how I kind of break this down. I used to be a 12-stomper, not a 12-stepper. Uh, I just make damn sure you got it. Even if you needed by enema format, I mean, I just do that. We just do it. You're going to get these by God one of suppositories. You know, I'm going to give it to you. Uh, it's not very attractive, quite frankly, and I would tell people this is, and, and I think this is the deal, the truth is, I think the worst thing that anybody can do is interfere with anybody else's spiritual journey. I guess the biggest, if you want to call it sin, that you can be the biggest travesty on a spiritual quest is me to interfere with it. Saying that, what I tell the new guys I work with is that, you know, if you can, if you can just do this, if you can just do this and try your best to focus on taking these actions and developing a relationship, let's get you through the steps so that you can fundamentally sit down and be at ease, peace and comfort. If you'll do that, because I think it's so easy for us to get diverted. Uh, the nature of the, the nature of the illness, the malady, Looks for ways to distract me from God. Looks for ways to distract me from God. Any shiny thing that comes along, it will, the malady will, the ego will distract me because God is the ego's enemy. And, uh, God is the enemy of the illness, the malady. And anything, so anything that will distract me from that, the ego encourages that because it makes me feel better. And that's one of the worst things I think can happen to alcoholics. They come here and without doing anything in the book or the steps, they feel better. Because if they feel better, I don't need AA. I don't need God. Then we get good ideas. And so while I used to mandate that, today I just say, you know, this is what I suggest. This is what my experience is that it works the best. The guys that I've watched have success and become happy, joyous, and free are those that would come here and just do this. Give yourself some time to do what, exactly what Lori talked about. And then, and then, you know, do whatever. But I tell them, whatever you do, I'm not going to criticize, judge, or condemn you for that. If you go and you believe God's a pimp and you found the one, that's okay too. I mean, that's all right with me. I'm going to be here for you, good or bad. Good or bad. Hope that helped. Tommy, you got something? Yeah. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you relate yourself with somebody that doesn't want to have one to you? Well, I just don't. <laughs> so the question was, how do you really have a relationship with somebody that don't want to have a relationship? I just don't. How do you do that? Yeah, yeah, I get that. I, I get that, but you know, uh, I think uh, Judy talked about that. You know, uh, everything's on God's time, not my time. And uh, what I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to do the footwork. You know, my friend uh, Don M. talks about the stitches in the pattern. You know, I just take the next stitch is all I do, and God's pattern develops for me. And and that, you know, some some families are never reconciled. That's just the truth. And we say something less than that when people come in. Well, you tell me you just get everything back. That's not true. That's a lie. Some, fam- some relationships never get healed. They just don't. Uh, but what we can come here is learn how to be happy regardless of that. So I think we're way past our time, I'm sure. So, uh, But we'll stick around if you guys want to talk after. We'll do that too. How about that? So, Dee, you going to take us out of here? Yes, I am.